to episode 44 of Oscar Podcast. We're very excited about this because it's the year that Silence of the Lambs won Best Picture. It remains one of the most deserving Best Picture winners in all of Oscar history and is a great, great film. Um, I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com, Ryan Adams and me from Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com, and with special guest Michael Gray. And we're going to start right now with uh, the current Oscar race. Uh, and we're going to then move into the year 1991. We might divide up the podcast like we did last week, or if it's short enough, we can put them all into one. But we'll spend about 20 minutes on the Oscar race and then move forward. Um, so the big thing that just happened today was that 12 Years a Slave, Steve McQueen's um, film, just won the Audience Award at Toronto Film Festival. And... It's a big deal because the one thing that film needed was a kind of consensus support from a big crowd, which it, 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 nobody really knew coming out of Telluride, where it hit really big, if it was going to do that. But, but Toronto seems to have proven that, it, yes, it has crowd appeal. Weirdly, this, the two runners-up were Philomena and Prisoners and not Gravity, which everybody assumed would have at least been number two or number three. But nonetheless, um, the other thing to note is that the <clears throat> Toronto Film Festival changed its voting procedures this year. I'm not really sure exactly how they changed it, but they changed it significantly, and that also might have some bearing on how the results came out. The the the, the way and how do they, how do they ballot? Do we know how they how they vote? How they choose the audience award? Is it just like they they have a select group of people who they invite? to a certain screening or to a couple of screenings who get to vote? Or how does that I think work? it might be the gala screening. Um, uh-huh. the, uh, the gala screening they, they, they get tickets to, and then you have to use – I tried to register to vote just to see if I could do it, and mm. you definitely need your ticket. Um, but they changed somehow changed the voting this year. Somebody on Twitter told me. Uh, he didn't elaborate, but he did say that they changed it. Um, to favor more preferential voting the way that the Academy does it rather than a majority. But I'll read you exactly what he said um, to me. He said, you should write about the Toronto Film Festival changing the voting this year. It's no longer ratings out of five, but simple yes and no. This means a movie everyone liked but no one loved has a huge, huge advantage. This is how Philomena scored higher than Gravity. Because you can only choose – it's an up-and-down thing, and you choose your favorite or, or in everything else. Is that is, – is, you just have one favorite, basically, right? Not even that, but you, I think if, it, if it's the audience award and if it's like at other festivals I've been to where everybody who sees the film gets to vote, and they just say whether they liked it or not. And if everybody liked the movie, then it has more votes than another movie that maybe split people. It's not that you, it's not that you pick one. You just pick which ones you like. Did you like as this you, one? As yes. you see them, so, so that kind of makes sense. But that, that maybe the same kind of the same group of people who liked Twelve Years a Slave so much might have liked Gravity, their second favorite film, because they're both really sophisticated films. But they could only choose one, so they chose Twelve Years a Slave. That's what I'm saying. Is I don't think you have to choose one. You yeah. just choose. Oh, whether, see, you right. just choose whether you liked it or whether you didn't. The, the film that gets the most likes is the winner. And I get it. Okay. The most likes got. 12 Years a Slave because that and that shows that <clears throat> despite the fact that it's a pretty hardcore movie to watch and you'd think it would be divisive because of that it really isn't divisive I mean it's pretty much right down the moral line of right and wrong and there's you know no one I don't think you'd, you'd have to be somebody like um, Bill O'Reilly or, or Glenn Beck to watch that movie and say there was anything wrong with it you know what I mean 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not wrong with it, but to say you didn't I have like. a problem with it. It's a really good indicator, but but there are some really strange choices that they have made in the past five or ten years. This year, of course, Twelve Years a Slave won. Last year, Silver Linings Playbook won. King's Speech won in 2010. Precious won in 2009. But in 2011, a movie called Where Do We Go Now? A Lebanese film, I think, won the Audience Award, and then then it just disappeared. We never heard about it again. Other winners have been Slumdog Millionaire, Eastern Promises, uh, Hotel Rwanda. So those movies all uh, sustained their, their 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 Toronto buzz throughout the year, but there's been some others that just absolutely disappeared after yeah. they were after they. Well, it depends on your definition of disappeared in terms of Oscar. Mm. Where do we go mm. now? Disappeared, but it's actually a terrific little movie, and it it was oh, just as okay. deserving as anything else. But it wasn't it, it wasn't the kind of what kind of movie that's going to be launched into the Oscar stratosphere kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. right. But Twelve Years a Slave definitely is because it goes in with a certain amount of, of critical buzz, and this sort of ratifies it. It, it. Like Sasha was saying, it's now a movie that not only has critical respect, but it's a movie that audiences are obviously responding to, mm-hmm. which, is, which is a huge double whammy. And mm-hmm. it's got, I mean, Precious, you could argue, would have had history on its side as well, making history if, if that movie had won Best Picture. And to tell you the truth, it did come very close to winning Best Picture. It wasn't Avatar that was going to beat Hurt Locker. If anything, it was going to be Precious. But right. um, the night before the Oscars, Precious swept the Independent Spirit Awards. I yeah. mean, it, that cleaned up. It he, won like you know four or five different awards, I think. He beat um, Jason Reitman for adapted screenplay. Joffrey Fletcher did, and and uh, Jason mm-hmm. Reitman had won everything prior to that. But yeah. the thing is, is about Twelve Years a Slave that it's got more going for it than Precious did. It's coming into an Oscar year where the the Academy has actually made taking concrete steps to improve its diversity. It's coming in in a year when there are three very strong um, films entering the race by African-American filmmakers. Well, two African-American filmmakers, one British black filmmaker, Steve McQueen, who directed 12 Years a Slave. He's not African-American, so anybody who calls him that is wrong. Um, but the but Lee Daniels and Ryan Coogler certainly are, um, at least we think they are. Mm -hmm. African-American is such a weird term because, like, for instance, Michael's not an African-American. His family is Creole, right, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. Uh So he's not even an he's not African-American. So you have to kind of be careful how you use that, I guess. But Mm -hmm. that's why I tend to say black instead of African, because you never really know Mm -hmm. for sure that um, their family came from Africa. But at any rate, um, so that's another thing it has going for it. It's, It's sort of catching the wave right now of this change. I can't imagine it's, any it's, movie beating it. It seems like a less divisive movie than Precious. I mean, whatever you think about Precious, there were legitimate reasons to be critical of it, I think. Whereas right. I, I haven't seen 12 Years a Slave yet, but it seems a little more a little more unassailable to me. You, you, might, people you who... might be put off by it because it's intense and hard, but... That's as far as that goes. Mm, there, were, there, were pe- there were people who, who vehemently disliked Precious. I right. testify to that because I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like Precious at all. So I know there, it was really polarizing. You really, really liked it, or you? There were some people who really, really didn't like it at all. And so, and I, but I don't think Twelve Years a Slave will be that way. Yeah, I expected when I first started watching it, sit down to see the very first time it ever showed in front of an audience, you know, and I thought a lot of the enthusiasm was for Brad Pitt because he was there and he's a producer, which means if it wins Best Picture, Brad Pitt wins an Oscar finally. Um, which he hasn't won and probably never will win in any other capacity, but um, possibly. Who knows, right? But um, He's too pretty. 
He's got, yeah, they don't like the pretty boys. It's true. He's like Robert Redford. He's too pretty. He's too pretty. But um, but it was 12 Years a Slave starts off a little bit awkward. Some of the lines of dialogue seem really overwrought and a little on the pretentious side. But it gets its momentum, and then it becomes wow. <laughs> but you know what? I, I, I hope people realize that that's the way people spoke back then. If you read, if you read even one page of Solomon Northup's memoirs, his 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 language is really uh, high high flown, sort of. You yeah. know, it's elaborate, it's ornate. The that's way what's that, interesting that about mm-hmm. it is you hear these you hear the slaves speaking that way, and you mm-hmm. I don't think any American audiences have ever seen slaves speaking with that kind of uh, intelligence so and eloquence. Mm-hmm. Using People back then words. in general were more eloquent than they are now mm-hmm. by a long shot. Oh, I know. Look at Lincoln. And right. this movie really does adhere to the language very specifically. Well, Sasha, how did they speak? Explain it to me. Huh? Like, <sighs> it's, it's, a really different, it's a different diction, right? It's a whole different sort of sentence structure. It's a much more, more ele- and, you know, just think about the way that, that like Charles Dickens wrote or people who uh, writers from the mid mid 19th century, the novels that you can think of that were written back in. It's just a really ornate uh, way of expressing. I'm trying yourself. to think of a certain line that struck out at me, but it wasn't like your typical slave speak. I'll tell you that it wasn't like. You know, Mass, I'm going to go get me some soap and wash my hair. You know, it was more well, like... Well, that's old Hollywood. That's the way it is. Yeah, exactly. This movie doesn't do that. It's it's more like, you know, they, the, the slaves speak, you know, like the the white people speak. They speak well, in... I, I, I can't think of a specific... Kind of sl- but there were two kind of slaves in that period. There were the educated slaves, and then there were the uneducated slaves. The uneducated slaves were the ones who worked the field. Right. The educated ones were the ones who pretty much worked in the house they taught the kids how to read from, a lot mm-hmm. from right, the time right, that right. they were born they were they were they were they were they were um um they were nurtured to become um people who, who they would want in the house right but even, right. So that they, even the slaves in this movie a lot of them are tra- are are like the, the star of the movie is a is an educated freed slave who lived as a free man with his family before he was stolen and sent back to work as a slave so a lot of the men he's with are like that, and the women are like that. They were formerly free, and they speak very educated. Well, with, they were with an educated, okay. but they do show the distinction between the two. But even the ones who aren't educated still speak more intelligently than you've ever seen slaves in movies speak. I mean, it, it is, it does stand out at you. And and I heard a lady behind me. She was like, she was like crying, but I thought she was laughing. And I was thinking, wow, she's laughing at this because it is. It takes itself so seriously. I mean, there is no humor in this film at all, except. Mm. In the extremes of Michael Fassbender, who gets like Dennis Hopper-like in his anger, and that's the only mm. way you laugh is because you're so nervous about his how mean he is. But but that's so I was thinking, oh God, people, you know, the critics are going to laugh at this. The critics are going to think this is too haughty, it's too uppity, it's too you know pretentious. And and but but it, exactly the opposite happens because the movie hits its stride, and there's no turning back. I mean, it just it's Sasha. soars. Sasha. Yeah. You know what you said? That terminology, free slave. Also, during that time period, a lot of free slaves were free in the state that they were in. But if they went into another slave state, they may not have been free because yeah. some of those slave states did not honor those free slave papers. But that wasn't the case with him. This was he was he was so he was free all over. No, he was. Ki- I don't know, but he was kidnapped and he was dragged. It didn't matter. Like when. 
who who owned him at one point. But when the when the when the white guy died in his will, he bequeathed the freedom to Solomon Northrop's father. And so Solomon Northrop's father was already free when Solomon Northrop was born, I believe. Right. Right. Right, um, and it's he is twelve years a slave. He he, and it is about Stephen Queen's right. It is about survival. He's bristled in interviews when people say it's about race. I guess he didn't approach it that way. It is definitely a movie about survival. You know, about having to mm-hmm. stick it out just to get back to your family, no matter what kind of humiliations you have to endure. Um, but mm-hmm. there's just no denying that. That it's. I mean, I'll tell you this: if this movie wins Best Picture, which people are all thinking it's going to, I think it's going to be the other than it'll be like right up there with Hurt Locker and um, No Country for Old Men as like this grand artistic achievement that managed to also win Best Picture, which is almost like a miracle because it is so artsy. This movie that it's like the Academy; they don't go for this kind of movie usually. You know, they pick pretty middle brow stuff. Yeah. What are what are black critics saying about the film? You know, I, there aren't any, dude. <laughs> there aren't any. There's like really? one. <laughs> it's I white mean, men, baby. Black magazines, black <laughs> critics, some critics. I have. I, I know. I know that the Boston critic is a black guy, and we know that Amon White is a black guy. I can't think of I, offhand, and I, who and who and um, the guy who used to write for the New York Times is black. I can't Elvis only think Mitchell. of just Elvis Mitchell. I can only think of those three really offhand. Then Elvis because Mitchell you know, doesn't really write film. reviews. Because, you know, every black, every time there's a black film about slavery, you know, groups like the NAACP stepped in and they kind of give their opinion on the film. And whatever they say, it kind of influences the black community. That's very true. And I will agree you know? with you. They're going to say that about they said that about the help. But the butler and Fruitvale Station and um, 12 Years of Slave are, di- are directed and, you know, by black men. And that's going right. to make a big difference. Because it's not a white storyteller telling that story. If it had been a white storyteller, the critics would probably tear it apart, I have to say. But Only it, because it is a black filmmaker who is not associated with American slavery. That's though. right. And he didn't, wasn't really thinking about American racism when he made the film. It's true. Mm-hmm. However, it is. And one of the things they're going to be able to nail him on is that his other movies have been about white characters. And he doesn't really... He's not, you know... And, but, you know, nobody really held that against him, I don't think. No, I don't <laughs> so think that, so, so either. It's really, it, that's an unfair thing that you would hold it against a white director who makes uh, movies about black people. But but everyone just really accepted it really easily that Steve McQueen makes movies about white people. Because why, he, and know, why, he doesn't, why shouldn't he? He doesn't associate they, himself the way black filmmakers yeah. do over here. Mm-hmm. He's not he's not standing up for the cause of racism mm-hmm. in America. That, that mm-hmm. isn't his job. That's not how he approached this movie. Mm-hmm. But a lot of black filmmakers here feel that way they feel like they have to carry the burden of the black population in america you know i mean you look know, at- i will say though so, something about the, the the time period that takes place in 1853 it was almost pre-racism really racism didn't really begin as, as we understand racism today until after the civil war because there was no reason for white people to be racist they owned black people why should they right. need to be well, racist? By racist racist racism was it, such it, a no meaning that it part has of the culture that it didn't even it wasn't even called that then. meaning that it has deeper meaning for today, which is what right, I wrote a racial, in my racial, racial yeah. significance. 
for today. The white had all the power back then in those days. Mm -hmm. exactly. They controlled That's what everything. I mean. So yeah. there was no it, need for whites to be racist against blacks. The blacks were yeah, in they, their place. The whites were in their place. But when I, when I, I was meant, looking but at... But I know what Sasha's saying, too, that, that, that the, that the um, significance for, for us today relates to the racial... Well, because you can't, you, no matter what you do, you can't change the color of your skin. You can be walking right. down the street and you're still a black man in America. Mm. And, uh, well, it's unfortunate that a black, that when a white person makes a film, they're not making a film as a rep representative for an entire race. But whenever a black person makes a film, they're always expected to be carrying the torch for their, their whole amorphous culture which doesn't really exist mm -hmm. anyway so it's especially difficult for him because he's he's because he is english he's not yeah. an american so and it's, I think it's his experience with with race is much different than what a person's experience with race might be in this country right so maybe he, maybe he's bristling about that a little bit and rightfully so probably yeah and, he, and we have to accept, if he says that he didn't have race, racism on his mind when he made the movie, we have to take him at his word for that. And he's entitled to, to feel that way, but he cannot control the way that his movie is interpreted by other people. If, we, if it's interpreted on a racial basis, then he has to accept that as well. He shouldn't, be, he shouldn't bristle at it. He shouldn't bristle at it. Well, yeah, every every artist has to accept how their movie is interpreted at a certain yeah. point. Once, once they've made it, it's, it's, it's up in the air. It's now the audience's to do with what they will. Right. No, the thing is, is that... And Racism is so. Racism in this country is so. Um, it's such a. Um, I'm trying to find the right word for it. We're so ingrained with it that every time we open our mouths, there's racism that comes out of our mouths sometimes. But if you go unintentionally, to it's unintentional. But people who would who would. But we are ingrained with racism in this country. It's just it's a part of us. It's been a part of us for for so long. But if you the original sin. Other, it, who, they don't care about it, the color of a person's skin in other countries. It, it doesn't matter. That's why a lot of countries laugh at America because we, everything that comes out of everything is racist all the time. Oh, here. believe me, we know. We have all these international readers, and every time I write an article about racism, they're always scratching their heads. It's like, is that really that big of a deal? Like, they just don't get it. And that's mm -hmm. why a lot of times nowadays, Best Picture is a movie that has to translate internationally. You can't really have a Best Picture winner that is specific to America so much anymore as you used to, which is why Argo won and The King's Speech won and The Artist won. I mean, these are all international hits. And if it, it is a movie specifically about, for instance, Lincoln was not internationally a hit, right? So if it's, if it's a movie that's specifically about American racism, it's going to have a hard time winning Best Picture in this day and age, whereas 12 Years a Slave doesn't really feel so much specific to American um, slavery simply because Steve McQueen directed it, and that makes it somehow more internationally um, relevant in a way because he's international, you know, mm -hmm. and he has, we have all these international actors in it. We have Michael Fassbender and Benedict Cumberbatch, you know. And Steve McQueen has an international reputation that precedes him, that precedes right. this movie and precedes his, his image already. People are familiar with him internationally on the basis of his other two great mo movies that he made, Shame and Hunger. And he's a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker. Yeah. And I, It sounds like he's got a movie that's not going to play into anybody's expectations of it, at least in this country. People are, are, are going to be surprised by the way the slaves talk. And then they're also going to be surprised, it sounds like, his with his with his sort of thematic focus. But from what you're saying, none of that stuff ultimately really matters. And I think um, 
it's not how a movie starts that that leaves you leaves the impression it's how it leaves you feeling and it sounds to me from what you've said about it that it wins you over even if it takes you in a place where you weren't expecting to go it's mind-boggling this movie i i'm so excited for everybody to see it just to be blown away like i was like the the, the theme for me of this year's movies that i've seen is blown away like gravity blew me away 12 years a slave captain phillips Inside Lewin Davis, Nebraska, all these movies are just operating to me at a level 10, you know, like that the, they're just mm-hmm. the career best of all these directors. But it's especially so of Steve McQueen. And that's what's amazing about that movie is that you sit down expecting to see what you, you know, what you are used to seeing you know we've mm-hmm. seen stories of slavery we've seen stories of the civil war we've seen them told over and over and over again and yet he tells it totally in a, you know differently than anyone has ever told the story and from a really interesting unique perspective because he's so artistically inclined everything is kind of an impression of violence you know and he's pretty faithful to the story you know i would say but every time you see a scene that's unbearable, you just can't believe you're going to watch this this next thing that happens. But you're dazzled by the directing and the cinematography mm. and the acting. You can't not watch. Yeah, you're just the, like, the wow. technique and the aesthetics because he's not he doesn't he's not he he has a definite aesthetic style that is recognizable from film to film, and that that comes across in the same way that all the greatest directors like Kubrick and. Other people, you know, have have that have that thing about them that's magical. Does it go beyond just telling a story? Right, and that's what's mind blowing about this whole Oscar thing is if this movie wins, it will, you know, movies like this don't win the Oscar. They just don't. So that's why it'll be an interesting year if it turns out to be so. On the other hand, if it starts winning everything and doesn't stop, it's going to get boring really fast. And people are oh, going well, let's to not say they'll be backlash against it. They'll be backlash. I honestly, it's hard for me to imagine, but but a lot of movies have not opened yet. Like there's Wolf of Wall Street, Foxcatcher, um, American Hustle. Uh, what else is coming up? Rush, you know, Captain Phillips. All these movies are opening, um, but mm. it's really hard to imagine for me right now. It, it's hard for me to imagine any movie beating Twelve Years a Slave. It's just one of those movies. It's important you know? to point out that at this point last year, everybody thought Argo was going to win, and then it went away for a while, and then it came roaring back again. So don't underestimate the early favorite. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah. Well, but I, I think it's, from everything you've said about it, it sounds like 12 Years a Slave is a, is a much more challenging film. And I was just saying to Ryan after we got disconnected that some years Oscar goes along with that. They pick the most challenging film. It kind of depends on what the competition is. If there's a movie out there that's kind of a softball, but still relatively quality, but winds up leaving you feeling good, then 12 Years a Slave could be in real trouble. But if there's not, then it has a real shot. Yeah. This, this, this could be one of those years where it makes the smart choice Oscar does. But do you feel that if the film doesn't win Best Picture, that if a strong direction, Steve McQueen could win Best Director still? I can see that happening. I don't think any other movie is going to win. I, I hear people say, "Oh, Gravity's going to win Best Picture," and make it. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think we're lo- we're talking about Best Picture here. We're not talking about Best Director. I mean, yes, I could see that happening. Another split like last year. Um, it's hard for me to imagine last year if Twelve Years a Slave had been in the running. There were so many great movies last year that 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 Argo beat. Um, 
that it's hard for me to say, oh, if 12 Years a Slave had been in last year, Argo still wouldn't have beat it, because to me, Argo beat films as good as 12 Years a Slave. I just feel like this year, it's a different subject and a different story, and we are coming off a year where a middling film won Best Picture, and that usually means that it's enough of a shock to people that they want to vote for a more hard-hitting movie. Um, but it's it's the narrative this year is that there are three very strong African-American filmmakers in the race, and I think it would be beyond embarrassing if one of those films didn't at least do director one, one picture. I mean, it's just, it would be an embarrassment of epic proportions, let's put it that way. I think so, too. I think it would definitely be, if, if the movie is as good as everyone says it is, if it, if it sustains uh, the enthusiasm with the critics that, that it's receiving at the festivals, I don't see how it can lose. But I will say about what Craig was talking about, about once in a while the Academy does get it right. I think that those years when it, when, it, when it does seem like that they get it right, like with Schindler's List, which is a sort of parallel or can be directly compared to 12 Years of Slave in some ways to Schindler's List, that was kind of a weak year because it was up against The Fugitive and Remain of the day and in the name of the father and the piano that wasn't a really strong competition even no country for old men didn't have really yeah really exactly. when you think about this competition that year juno and michael clayton and what else was there atonement maybe atonement. Yeah. and uh, there will be blood yeah there will be blood would have been its only competition i think but that would have i think that movie was too esoteric for most people yeah exactly but 12 years of slave is esoteric 12 years of slave is a lot like there will be blood except mm, yeah. it has a hat I'm, I'm a spoiler, but it's that's, not as frustrating as, as There Will Be Blood, but it's it's in that level of esoteric. It, so that's why, to me, if it wins this year, it'll be like There Will Be Blood winning. That's the best comparison that I've heard anyone make so far, trying to trying to say, see if there's any kind of precedent that we ever, if we've ever seen a movie like 12 Years a Slave ever before. That's really the best comparison I've heard anyone ever make. Although the, the, There Will Be Blood would have had a shot if No Country for and No Country for Old Men mm-hmm. yeah. started early and won and, and didn't stop winning all the way through. And then a lot of that was the love of the director. So mm-hmm. the only sticking... And a lot of it was because it was awesome. <laughs> and it's yeah. just the we'll best movie on, so. ever. Yeah. But the thing about There Will Be Blood versus um, 12 Years a Slave is that, is that while Steve McQueen's movies are esoteric, like Shame and um, Hunger... Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie is very audience friendly. I'll just say that without giving it away. It does it does not leave you dissatisfied by the end, and it it right it you know because it's a true story. It has to tell that story. So it is on the one hand, its filmmaking style is esoteric, like There Will Be Blood. But it's it's also just kind of very a tr- very traditional linear story too. And because it's more and more emotionally engaging, I would imagine. Very sobbing, not a dry. Yeah. In the I was going to say it sounds like it hits emotional buttons. Whereas if you could say one bad thing about there will be blood for sure, it's something that doesn't necessarily engage people emotionally, right. at least not in a good way. Because right. you didn't have anyone to really to root for, and there will be blood. Right, but the unless style... you're evil like me, and you're totally rooting for <laughs> Daniel Plainview. But seriously, right. the style of it and the the really melodramatic scenes of it even has that one guy in it that same guy you know that actor who plays the son or you know um, the preacher dano paul dano paul dano has a very similar like chewing scenery scene you know part in mm. 12 years a slave it's it, that's what reminds me of there will be blood because it's like esoteric filmmaking then these really over-the-top dramatic melodramatic performances uh-huh. does anybody beat him to death with a bowling pin at the end <laughs> no but i think he he yeah 
Well, I won't tell if you. Not, what I don't, don't want to see it. He doesn't get beat both. <laughs> but um, but that's the thing is, and I also remember when There Will Be Blood first screened. The excitement for it was, oh my God, it's going to win Best Picture. There were people predicting it would win Best Picture uh, when mm-hmm. it first came out, and everybody was. I remember being one of the few who were saying, no way, no country's going to win. But that's the danger is that at this point it's easy to be inside the bubble and and, and sort of feed off of the response of the relatively small percentage of people who have actually seen the films yet. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I remember to get, carried, to get carried away with it. They premiered There Will Be Blood in Austin, right? And people just went wild about it. They went yeah. wild over it. I mean, absolutely flipped out. And people were saying, and I was, I made, that was my first year, I think, helping you out at Awards Daily. I made the mistake of jumping on that bandwagon in, in September saying that, well, we, there's our Oscar winner right there. Yeah. And you cautioned me not to say that. I'd be very careful of throwing that around. Because not only was did I not know what, what was ahead of us, but that can actually jinx a movie to say that too. Yeah, early. and that, that's going to jinx totally years a slave to a degree I, I wouldn't get ahead of myself if i didn't think this movie had a really good shot and it's not just because the critics were going nuts over it and tell you right it's it's so much more than that it's the narrative of the year it's making history it's mm-hmm. you know there's a lot there you- to it it's not just a movie like there will be blood that people are excited about on the other hand that is a good cautionary tale and with that we shall move on to 1991 let me just are you still there yeah. michael the movies of 1991 and the Oscars of 1992. Interesting, and in, in, in we mentioned last week that uh, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins presented one of the Oscars at, in 1991 because, in fact, uh, in March 30th of 1991, Silence of the Lambs had already been in theaters for four weeks and it had been number one in theaters for four weeks in a row. So they, when, they, when they presented the award at the Oscars in 1991, the movie that would win Best Picture the following year had already been in theaters for four weeks and was, was killing it at the box office. Wow. It, it was made for like $19 million, I think, and by four weeks into its run, it had already tripled what it cost to make. And that's that when they st- took, st- took uh, stepped on stage in March 30th of that year, that's what people were thinking, that here's this fantastic movie that came out of nowhere that is making all this money and was made for such – and, and it's really – it's a hit with critics and it's a hit with, with the audiences. It's making a lot of money. And, and, and it, was a, it was one of the few movies that ever premiered before the – as far back as the previous year's Oscars and, and sustained this momentum throughout the entire year. Yeah. I think maybe the only time that ever happened, as far as I know. It was the, also the first year that um, that um, it was the year that John Singleton was became the first black director ever nominated for an Oscar for Boys in the Boys Hood. Boys in the Hood. Mm-hmm. And it was also the year that that um, Selma Louise kind of took the the world by storm with its you know contradictory feminist message. And Callie Curry became one of the few females to win um, best screen best original screenplay um it was the year that warren Beatty met annette benning and a family was born and a career was taken away or such he, as it was at right. the time he he they married in, in the middle of balloting in the middle of when the ballots were out for the oscars that year it's when they got married and she was pregnant right yeah and terminator 2 judgment day was also that year great movie mm. um and other kind of strange fried green tomatoes which didn't do much in the oscar world but was sort of a another kind of um, controversy-filled adaptation of a, a lesbian novel, which got kind of tamed down for the big screen. And, and lest we forget, the first year that an animated yeah. film was nominated for Best I like the way, Picture. 
Beauty and the Beast. Hello? Mm-hmm. Did I lose everybody? You know, I almost have some neat little parallels with this year. I can hear you. I can hear you. Oh, okay. So start over what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, the... There there are several different nice little parallels between 1992 and 2013. Um, Brad Pitt's breakout movie was Thelma and Louise. He was really a nobody up until then, but he became a huge star on the basis of just one or two scenes in Thelma and Louise. And now he is producing the the movie that's likely to win Best Picture this year. That's funny. there's a couple of things that happened. And the fact that John Singleton was the first black director um, ever nominated. He was also the second youngest director ever nominated. He was 26 years old when he made Boys in the Hood. And this year, Ryan Coogler is 23 years old. So if Ryan Coogler is somehow nominated for Best Director this year, he and John Singleton would be two of the three youngest directors ever nominated, along with Orson Welles. Wow. And it was also tw- Martin Scorsese had a, um, a film and he had Cape Fear. And this year he might have Wolf of Wall Street in there. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So those goes around, comes around. Yeah. So uh, I, I think from now on, I think I'm, I'm liking the way that from now on, probably from 1992 onwards, we're going to find more and more ways that, that the, that the Oscars of the past relate to the current year, so we'll have a, be able to draw a lot of connections like that. Yeah, um, the the, um, the 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 nomination of Beauty and the Beast for Best Picture. Michael and I tried to find it on TV last night. We couldn't get it anywhere to watch, but um, hmm. it uh, it ended up creating the animation Best Animation um, Film category because it freaked everybody out that an animated film could take one of the five slots. Now, of course, since we have ten, you know. Nine, ten, whatever, however many Best Picture nominees, mm-hmm. animated films mm-hmm. routinely get in in Best Picture if they're Pixar. Mm-hmm. But um, but back then it was right. caused a big hubbub. This this week we uh, for the past couple of weeks we've asked the listeners to if they have any uh, questions for us, if any suggestions or anything that they'd like to ask us that we could answer or, or address during the podcast. One of the uh, questions that we got from a guy named, one of our listeners named Kevin Dillon. He wanted to know what we thought about the fact that uh, Beauty and the Beast was nominated for Best Picture and how that came about, how that happened. And I'm trying to think of different reasons, various reasons why that may have happened. Um, Michael, I think one important you... thing about Beauty and the Beast, other than that it was an extremely successful film, it was also sort of the the ratifying of a sort of a Disney renaissance. A year or two before, they had come out with um, Little Mermaid, which was also obscenely popular. Mm-hmm. But up to that point, for almost 20 years, Disney, which had been this formerly great you know, company, had sort of been in the wilderness. They weren't on the cutting edge anymore. They weren't very important anymore. They were, a lot of their movies were junky. Kids liked them, but they were not... But now suddenly... They're sort of back with a vengeance, and Muting the Beast is right in the middle of this this four or five movie streak over the course of about ten years, where they were just sitting in one home run after another before Pixar came along. Um, it was all about Disney, and they were back. Mm-hmm. And I think that that narrative, I think, sort of helped people take the movie a little more seriously than they have historically taken animation. I think absolutely. One thing that happened, I think maybe previous to Little Mermaid, the last great Disney animated feature was probably The Jungle Book in 1967. And before that, even even earlier in 1963, 101 Dalmatians. And you know what happened in the, in the, in the mid-60s is Disney 
And like Walt Disney died and, and, and Roy Disney died also. And they sort of lost their way for 18 or 20 years, as you say. Really, when you think about the movies between 1967 and 1988 or 89 or so, you can't even name the Disney uh, animated features that came out in that period because they're so, they just don't live up to the, the standards that they had set. So it was like a comeback. When Little Mermaid was made, it was like they had regained their footing. Partially, I think that's partially due to Katzenberg and, and, exactly. uh, and, and Eisner taking over Disney. And so they finally had someone at the helm who knew what they were doing again. They I took think the animation wait. seriously again. Mm-hmm. What, Michael? I think the last Disney, no, I'm saying, I think the last film in Disney that was The Rescuers was the last one. And then all of a sudden they had a slump of movies. And then there were a number of years, there was a big slump. And then all of a sudden The Little Mermaid came out mm-hmm. in 1989, I believe. And mm-hmm. that just set the bar for Disney. And then all of a sudden their movies since they had like one big hit after another, then you had Beauty and the Beast. And I think the reason for me why Beauty and the Beast is the best picture, it, it had all elements of a live action musical. It had a great story. The music blended in with the story. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's kind of rare for a cartoon. Usually when they have an animated film with music, the music doesn't kind of go with the story. But this music went well with the story. So I think that's why it got nominated. It was just a well-paced story with, the, with great music. Mm-hmm. It also, also seems just to blend in well. That's a great and point, it, Michael. That's really, I like it. Not only a renaissance for Disney animation, but it was a renaissance in a way for the musical. It was a renaissance for movie musicals. We hadn't had a movie musical that had been that, that stirring and that enjoyable for, for years and years. I mean, that's you, the interesting thing. It's not only a renaissance, but it's also a throwback to... Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say, remember the night of the Oscars? Every person that went up there, when they they always complimented, they always commented on the fact that a, a cartoon was nominated for Best Picture, but Ameri- but musicals, live action musicals were dead. And they, and they and if you remember when Liza Minnelli she went up and gave out one of the one of the awards, she says that we need to make a movie musical with live actors. It mm-hmm. feels like the jealousy that this animated mm-hmm. film captured Best Picture because it was almost like a um, a slap a slap in the face to um, directors who make a movie musical with live actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that it 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 it, uh, it uh, enough people were enthusiastic about Beauty and the Beast to push it into the Best Picture category, but enough people were resentful of it that they wanted to abs- immediately take it out of the Best Picture category and give it its own category, give animated pictures their own category, because they could see that Disney was in the middle of a renaissance. The next the next film they came out with, I think, was The Lion King, right? And also Pixar. Yeah. Pixar was right on the verge of of, of coming into its own in 1995 so it's a good thing that they created the category right in the middle of the of the, of the resurgence of the animated films i'd just like to well, say that a- thematically beauty and the beast was a wonderful like you know it was a, it was such an inspirational film for a lot of young women that was the other thing about it, it was that Belle was a reader you know she was this great character she mm-hmm. wasn't your ditzy typical disney princess like she was smart and I remember that get, that lent it a little bit more gravity than it would have had otherwise. Was that it? It did. It did seem to take a step forward with Disney princesses. That you know now they've sort of slipped back into the old mold. But 
gone? Can you imagine? He asked me to marry him. Me, the wife of that boorish, brainless... Madame Gaston, can't you just see it? Madame Gaston, his little wife. No, sir, not me. I guarantee it. I want much more than this provincial life. I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. I want it more. Someone understand I want so much more than they've got there. Um, that's a great point. It's it's a throwback in a way, stylistically in terms of it being musical like Snow White and, and some of the older Disney films, but it's a huge step forward thematically in terms of the treatment of its female heroine. The other well, thing also, was we were looking at the beginning. Most of Disney, if you go back to Disney's films, they're a princess. She wasn't a princess until after the fact. Right, so right. But either way, person. but mm-hmm. the, the the other thing was was that you know we've been you know how we we tend to look at the other films that might have been nominated that year, and it wasn't mm-hmm. like 1991 was particular. Bart, Barton Fink was 1991. That's the only. I mean, that's the only really glaring. Uh, Omission as I'm looking down the list of, of films, so it, it I, that's another reason why it, it mm-hmm. got in was because it didn't have a lot of competition. Barton had won. Uh, I, I think that Barton Fink was a. Um, it had won Palm the Palm Door at uh, at Cannes Film Festival that year, but I think it was maybe a little bit too strange and and bizarre maybe for a Best Picture nomination. Yeah, it seems like an oversight only sort of in retrospect. At the time, it was not well-received in this country. The French obviously loved it because the French are smart, but it didn't do well with audiences here, and it, it, didn't, it didn't really capture the public imagination the way, some of, the way only, Fargo did. I later. think it only got a Best Supporting Actor nod. Mm-hmm. I, think think you're right. Lerner. I think that's it. That's all it got, I believe. It's yeah. one of my favorite movies. I don't mean to sound like I'm negative on it. I love Martin Fink, but it doesn't surprise me that it didn't, it didn't do better because it's such it's a it's pretty relentlessly dark. I mean, it's funny, but it's also really, really dark. I will. I will confess that just for a while, it was it was my for a long time it was my least favorite Coen Brothers film. But it took me several. But I knew that I must be missing something, and so I kept. I've watched it over and over until finally it sunk in, and I, I really, really like it now. But it was one of the most difficult movies for me to get into of all of their films. But other than the movies that got in for Best Picture and the fact that Silence of the Lambs won and Beauty and the Beast was nominated, it kind of tells you what a weak year it was overall for for American film uh, in 1991. If you look down the list of all the releases, it just wasn't very interesting. Terminator 2 was the highest grossing. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Kevin Kevin Costner took um, the number three spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and Beauty and the Beast was number two. Hook was up there. Um, Silence of the Lambs was number five. JFK, The Adams Family, Cape Fear, Hot Shots, and City Slickers. So to me, other than, I mean, there may be a handful of really, really good movies that came out that year. And um, actually, Barton well, Fink know- won the palm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I really, I really like JFK a lot, and I really like Bugsy a lot. But both of those movies had problems um, during the voting process because there was such controversy stirred up about uh, the fact that they 
played so fast and loose with the facts. JFK, yeah. we know how Oliver Stone um, just went, went way out on the limb with his conspiracy, conspiracy theories and illustrating so many different ways that that, that people who could evolved right up to to President Johnson was almost sort of implicated, you know, and and they, so it really bothered people. I think that that Oliver Stone wanted to do. I don't think they really could justify or could see themselves giving best picture to a movie that was so controversial. And uh, and Bugsy itself was controversial because it it, it portrays um, Bugsy Siegel as being the guy who invented Las Vegas, but the grandson of the guy who owned the Hollywood Reporter at the time, I think his name is Wilkerson, he made a claim that it was his father, his father who had, who had started Las Vegas right. and who had started the Flamingo Hotel and that, it, and that he ran into financial trouble and Bugsy Siegel came in and offered him a million dollars if he could take it off of his hands. And that movie doesn't cover that at all. Yeah. And so the guy who, the guy, so so this guy who who who's, has connections with the trade paper, with the Hollywood Reporter, was making a big uh, deal about that, and I think it sort of soured people in the movie a little bit because they realized that the way that the, what Bugsy was showing in the movie was not the way that it happened. But it's not a. It's. I, I don't mean, think that matters. I remember when um, it came out. I remember the Oscars mm-hmm. that year because this was the mm-hmm. first year that I started paying attention to the Oscars because my favorite movie won the Oscars and I hadn't been following it, so I assumed that Bugsy was the one that was going to win. You know, we were all conditioned mm-hmm. to think the Oscar movie would win because Bugsy came into the race with so many nominations. It seemed like a big vanity project for Warren Beatty. And, um, you know, he was the big star. He gave this great performance. Annette Bening was so good, and it was an epic. It was period. It was about... And they had their they had their narrative going on their marriage narrative which you would have think would have really narrative. helped to boost them a little bit the fact that they got married and everything you and she was finally the guy that landed Warren Beatty right, and right, it had right. like you said it had ten nominations it went into it went into the race with more nominations than any other movie yeah it had the Lincoln slot at that point mm-hmm. because it was the kind yes. of the big lumbering you know um, supposed to win the Oscar movie and whenever that happens it's really easy for another movie to take to take the thunder of that movie. It's all, it's happened all through Oscar history you can find when there's this big movie that's supposed to be the front runner. This scrappy, quote unquote, scrappy underdog will come in and win and Sons of Lambs made a shitload of money. Actually Bugsy I think lost money. I think it was known for being over budget. And we watched it again and you know, as much as I love Bugsy, I swear to God that movie is all about Annette Benning. And when she's off, and she didn't even get nominated, and when she's off screen, it dies, and it's so boring. And you're thinking, who cares about Bugsy Siegel? I really don't care about this guy at all, you know? I totally do. <laughs> I, li- I love, I the love movie. Bugsy. I, I love the character, I, and I love, yeah. I love Annette Benning too, but I, I totally disagree. You know, but if you read the story about, Bugs, about Bugsy Siegel, the movie had a lot of half truths, mm-hmm. you know? And, I, and maybe that's because of Hollywood. You know, it was a very romanticized version of his life it, because it, it tried to tell the love story between him and Virginia Hill with all this other stuff around it. It was a um, more sophisticated but, version of, of Bonnie and Clyde in a way, you know, right. Uh, I guess I've never, I've never expected it to be the hardcore truth of, of a gangster's life. I always took it as, as a big splashy romance with Warren, ba- Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. And I can't think of anything else I would rather see. couple of bullfighters. That's what I heard. Ben, look at She is who she is. You ain't gonna change her. What man ever changed a woman? I don't go by what other men have done. I believe in fresh starts. Fresh starts? Hey, without fresh starts, you and me would have been history before we're 19. I hope you like scampi served on a bed of soft brown rice, rimmed by carrots and peas. 
What's the matter? Nothing. Come on. Eat. It'll make you big and strong. What do you think of bullfighting? It's been a while since I tried it. Well, what are your memories? Dangerous and fun. What about drums? What about drums? I'm a singer. Ever sing with a drummer? I've sung with all kinds of musicians. Are you going to eat or not? Your dinner's getting cold. Well, it's already cold. Were you under the impression that I was a virgin? No, no, no. I just thought maybe there was somebody you hadn't fucked. You fucked around and I fucked around. You want to tell me your stories? Fine, then I'll tell you mine. You want to bury the past where it belongs? We can do that too. But don't try playing these sulky little games with me. What we share should be goddamn good enough. And if it isn't, then we should call it quits right here. What'll it be? How about iodine? You don't need iodine. You need some soap and water. Why don't you wash out your fucking mouth while you're at it? I'm going home. But you kind of wonder, just watching her performance, because she is absolutely amazing in this film, why she was not nominated. It's like, it's a, to me, it's like, it's like one of the, it, it's a mystery, like when Sidney Poitier did not get nominated for, um, that movie about about the school teacher, one of the great mysteries of Hollywood. Right, right. And the same thing happens with her. She gave such a great leading lady performance. She was not nominated. It's like, I think they ran her oh, in lead, I, and she's supposed to be supporting. I think that's what it was. It was something like that. That that was Warren Beatty's problem throughout his whole career was Hollywood never liked his ego. They never liked his. Um, what they considered to be, I don't particularly agree. I'm just saying that this is this was the perception of him, was that he was you know involved in a lot of vanity projects, and that you know when Annette Bening became his wife or girlfriend or whatever, she immediately got elevated to leading actress status. I'm pretty sure that they blamed her for that. For they mm-hmm. that this kind of the, their hate general hatred of Warren Beatty spilled over to her. Um, I'm assuming that's what happened um, because the people who got nominated for lead actress was um, Jodie Foster, who won for Sons of the Lambs, Gina Davis and and Susan Sarandon for Thelma and Louise, Laura Dern for Rambling Rose, and the one that really doesn't belong there, Bette Midler for For the Boys. And that I Benning can't see been that. Can you? I just don't. I, I don't understand that. Well, back then they were more star driven than they are now. Um, mm-hmm. Hollywood was totally star driven, and I think that that there was a little bit of. Um, resistance to this notion of Annette Bening suddenly becoming that big of a star that she would be the leading, even though that is more of a supporting role. Mm-hmm. Had yeah. she been nominated? Was she nominated for the Grifters? I forgot yeah. already. Supporting. Mm-hmm. Supporting, yeah. Huh? But when you're you know, lead, it's that... interesting about sorry about Warren Beatty. 
he went in he went he goes into the 1992 Oscars with 18 previous Oscar nominations yeah. and twice two years in a row he was nominated for four in four different categories director writer producer and star that's only happened to like a, four other directors in history Orson Welles and Warren Beatty and I can't even remember the, and, and and Woody Allen I think and so to go in and he's and out of those 18 nominations he'd only won one time and that was the director's uh, the director's award for for Reds. And so even though yeah, I think he had a great reputation among his own among the, his director peers and among his writer peers, I think the overall Academy did harbor resentment against someone who was so good looking and so rich and had so such a great sex life and so talented and so smart. He, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the only yeah, explanation. Yeah, he, he he doesn't have the he didn't have the self effacing Ben Affleck thing going for him. He didn't no. he didn't play down his intelligence Never. or his good looks. He he was eager statistical about it and that sort of people will invite you to the prom but they don't want you to do the prom king but whereas ben affleck put his hat in his hands and was sort of the oh shucks all-american boy and people yeah. people felt comfortable voting for that they like they to didn't feel, feel so comfortable superior right and right. they can't feel superior to warren Beatty. the other thing about warren Beatty is he was a notorious pain in the ass to work with because he was mm-hmm. so meticulous and he was so demanding especially when it came to hit the women that he starred with like he had to have a very specific cameraman light them mm-hmm. and and all this stuff was being talked about then you want to know how to derail an oscar campaign start bringing shit like that up you know it only right. feeds mm-hmm. into and it, it really hurt annette benning of all of them because she her career died pretty much for a long time after she hooked up with warren Beatty. she she you know not only did she stay home to raise the kids which i think is a far better deal but mm. she kind of took on that Warren Beatty stigma in a way. Like, it, it, it kind of took her a long time to break out of it. I, I think now she's she's eked out a really great career in her older years. I'm amazed at everything she does now. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was kind of like she was the hot thing. She was it, you know. And, and then they got married, and then she kind of disappeared. But and, and she became, like, she did Love Affair with Warren Beatty, where he lit her in this really weird way. And, you know... Yeah, I think the the fact that that even even beginning with Reds, uh, his movies were also made the the enormous. They committed the enormous sin of not making money. He was coming off the previous year of Dick Tracy, exactly, which cost yeah. like a hundred million dollars and didn't make any of that money back. And then, but as you say, Bugsy uh, went in the hole too. It, it didn't make back its budget, and so that was a big drawback. That he was he was he was seen as someone who was extravagant. And but he had so much power that he was blowing a lot of money on these vanity projects and not not returning on his investment. Yeah, I so will why say. Would, so why would Hollywood honor him if he wasn't making Hollywood money? Because they're smart enough to know that he's smart and he's talented and everybody likes him. So they want him to be in the club. They just don't want to go that extra mile where they make him the king mm-hmm. of the prom. Plus, right. these, these Oscar movies are often a whole industry unto themselves. It's still like that. You know, you don't you don't make a big movie like the Bugsy and have it not get Oscar nominations. It's sort of like the fix is already in on a movie like that. It is made for that reason. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 that's that's its its goal is to get there, and it will with the publicists and the costumers and the you know every branch voting for it that worked on the movie, for instance, or you know it was so heavy on crafts. And, you know, at the time and for many years after, I thought it was a great movie. I'm just saying, looking back on it now with fresh eyes, I just really see Annette Bening as being the thing about it that pops. The rest of it seems, for some reason, to not have as much urgency as it did then. I don't know why. Maybe because Vegas doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. Or maybe Mm. because 
you know, it's just Warren Beatty again, kind of befuddled by the women in his life, which is kind of a running theme through his movies. Right. So you kind of see, feel like you're seeing the same story. I don't know what it is. I think he gives, in my opinion, one of his best performances in Bugsy. Running the day-to-day mechanics of my operation? That's my job. No, no. That was your job. You're working for him now. I think I'm missing something. Hey, you certainly are. About $14,000 in change. That's the $14,000 that you stole from us after the forty-two that Mickey took. Hey, now, wait a minute. Do you want to fuck me? What? That's a simple question, isn't it? Do you want to fuck me? <laughs> of course not. Huh? No? No. You sure? Of course I'm sure. Well, let me ask you this. You want to rape me? This is crazy. Shut up and answer the question. No, I... Do not lie to me. You stole from me. You stole from me, and stealing is a form of rape. Did you think you could get away with it? Did you think you could steal from me? From Maya Lansky, Charlie Luciano, and me, and get away with it? That you could rape us and humiliate us and get away with that? What? Give me an answer to that. Did you think you could get away no. with it or not? And do not lie to me. I'm not lying. Do not I'm lie not to lying. me. I'm not lying. That means you raped us even though you thought we would get you, huh? No, what? What? It wasn't like that. It wasn't like What was it like? Shut up. You want to change your answer? It's a very simple question. Did you think you could get away with it or not? Did you or not? Did you or not? I won't. Did you or not? I won't. I won't ever do it again. Oh, again. I won't ever do it again. I won't ever do it again. I'm begging you, Ben. Don't. Beg you, Don't do it. What do you want? You want to kill me? You want another chance? Don't do this to me, Ben. Let me tell you something. You can't. No one can. I can't kill me. See? Now try it. Come on, give it to me. Come on, do it. Why? What is it? Are you afraid to die? Crawl. Crawl. Come on. Now bark like the dog that you wish that you were decent enough to be. Bark! 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 Come on, crawl and bark! Come on, more! Let me hear that bark! Treacherous, devious pig that you are! Come on, come on! Get around there! Come on! Oink! No! Oink! 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 Come on! Yes! 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 Get up! Get up! Now look me in the eye! Go home, get the money you stole, and you bring it to me. This goes back in the safe at the betting parlor. Thanks, Ben. You count on me, Freddy. We'll see. Everybody needs a fresh start once in a while. Get out.
That's a great. Mm-hmm. Every scene with if Bugsy I, and Annette. If I didn't have great. such a huge man crush on him, I probably would be less defensive about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do have such a man crush on. I have a girl crush on Annette Bening. Oh my god, she's so beautiful in that movie and funny. She just pops off the screen. How she didn't become an Oscar nominee. We were just Michael and I were marveling at that. She's the best thing in it, and yet she's totally ignored. It's hard to imagine, since it, got, it did get plenty of other attention in so many other categories, that she wasn't included along the ride. It's just incredible. She's fantastic. Everything she does is just wow. She's a star. All right, let's move on well, to... Um, are, did you have something else to say, Michael? No, no, that's okay. Oh, okay. Let's move on to... Um, did we do JFK enough justice? I know a lot of people love that movie. Do we need to talk about JFK? I, we don't need to talk about it. I just really, really like it. And I also think it's interesting that, that uh, JFK was, in a, I think it was in a, in a, uh, produced by Orion Studios. And Orion was part of the, the, the narrative that year. Orion was about to go belly up. Orion had become, had, was formed when the, uh, all the executives from United Artists split off and formed their own company right before Heaven's Gate came out. And so even although Heaven's Gate gets all the blame for, for sinking United Artists, it's also partially because they lost all their executives because they got fed up with the Transamerica Corporation and they formed their own company, Orion, and they took Oliver Stone with them and they took Woody Allen with them. And so all throughout the 80s, Orion was doing really well. They made Amadeus. They made Platoon. They even The, the previous year, they had made Dances with Wolves. And but they also made the bad mistake of investing a lot of like a half a billion dollars in television production and none of their TV shows um, caught on. And so they suddenly found themselves in really dire financial straits. And it was well known around Hollywood that um, that Orion was about to go bankrupt the previous year. um, Billy Crystal made a joke that reversal of fortune was about a woman in a coma and awakenings was about a man in a coma. And um, Dances with Wolves was produced by a studio that was in a coma. (laughs) Yeah, so they already knew a year in advance that Orion was in trouble. And I think that people really respected Orion because of what they had tried to do coming from nothing in 1988 and and being such a a great studio for a decade. And now they were about to to evaporate. And I think that really helped Silence of the Lambs. But since the Silence Silence of the Lambs and JFK were both Orion pictures, it's like a Sophie's Choice sort of thing. Only one can, only one could win. I like the. I rewatched JFK last week, and I've always hated that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say that it's probably the best made picture of all of Oliver Stone's in terms of a pure kinetic filmmaking standpoint. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. My problem with it is that it's like Van Gogh painted the most amazing picture of an overflowing toilet. (laughs) It's it's toxic in terms of the lies that it tells. The fact that it passes off lies as the truth without drawing a clear distinction between the two. And it's a subject matter that would have been much better served by a documentary where you have people arguing different sides. But here, it's sort of a testament to the power of imagery and, 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 and filmmaking, um, the way you can, you can make something seem absolutely true, even though it's a complete load of shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And credit to the Academy, they did, get, they did give it those technical awards. It won Best Editing and it won Best Cinematography. Robert Richardson shot it. You know, we know we, so. Yeah, absolutely. And Robert Richardson was the first American cinematographer to win Best Cinematography in like six or seven years and because they'd all been going to foreign cinematographers. I and don't so know for, about for, that. Yeah. I think I might have given that to Thelma and Louise or Bugsy for cinematography. I mean, I know it's beautiful, JFK and everything, but, but come on. I mean, Those Bugsy. are both more classic in terms of cinematography but JFK, just the way 
the way Richardson helped him jam so much information onto the screen in such a small, relatively condensed space, and and just they're they're covering just so many details of of this story and and doing so much of it visually, it's it's a pretty incredible technical feat. I could watch the first five minutes of JFK. A thousand times. It's yeah. so they, they, the way that they fill you in on all the background of everything leading up to 1962, 1963, and with all the different film stocks that Richardson used to make it look like it was from different documentary sources and everything. It reminds me in a way of the opening of Citizen Kane. It really does. It's that right. it's that much of tour de force. But it gets it dies when Kevin Costner goes into the courtroom and starts back mm-hmm. into the left, back into the left, back into the left, and it suffered because people when, once word got out that he was a composite character that Jim Garrison was made up of different characters and the fact that Oliver Stone was playing with all these wacky conspiracy theories also Oliver Stone had pretty much beat the 1960s to death with with Platoon and and uh, Born on the Fourth of July he had pretty much he pretty much he would he was I think people were sort of tired of him whipping America you know beating up on America well, also that that it, none of that was proven true. I mean, no. it, it it still remains untrue. Many many people just still think it's Lee Harvey Oswald and that there wasn't a conspiracy. I mean, if if anything, it looks like you know the mob hit hit him. You know, plain and simply. But you know, no one's ever really been able to, to prove it. And it could have right. been weird, crazy right wingers. I mean, you know, racist too. But nobody will ever know because the evidence is gone and, you know, the, the mm-hmm. single gunman theory seems to have been debunked. On the other hand, other people say it's fine and it, it holds. And um, the A best more movie, interesting think, movie would have probed people's need to make a conspiracy out of something. Right. And it says something about us. This is a relatively new phenomenon, I think, at least since post-World War II with Roswell first and then the Kennedy assassination. But now it's every other thing is now a conspiracy. Look at 9-11. Benghazi, 9-11. Anything that happens, there's always a group of people that say, no, this is really how it happened. And everything. And and now with the Internet, people have been given the power to have a voice about the stupidest stuff. Right, right. I think think that is a more interesting idea than really who, who did it. But the course, great you know, thing I, about I, JFK I, I, are all the wonderful supporting parts, the, you know, Tommy Lee Jones. And to me, the, when I watch that movie, that's what I like to watch. It, it, it seems like two mm-hmm. movies to me, like all the weird flashbacky stuff and the stories and all the stuff that was going on at the time. And then the boring Kevin Costner part. And Kevin Costner's so bad. And that accent he tries to do is so <laughs> well, he bad. He is bad. And people they, people did, forgot how bad he was. But the same year you mentioned the Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, he won the Razzie, the, the Razzie Award that year for Prince yeah. of Thieves. The, the year after making Dances with Wolves, you know, people just forget what a wooden actor he it's is. It's just funny how we do this podcast and we watch the rise of somebody. We just went through mm-hmm. the huge rise of Kevin Costner. Now we're watching the fall of Kevin Costner. Pretty soon mm. we're going to get to Waterworld. <laughs> I know <laughs> it was Postman a quick fall too. That. I know. Yeah. So, um, but let's we're, we're going to run out of time if we don't change over to um, uh, Selma, Selma Louise, and then we'll do yeah. Silence. Of, we'll close out with Silence of the Lambs because there's a lot okay. to say about Silence of the Lambs. My, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, mm. Okay, so Thelma and Louise, Cali, written by Callie Corey, um, is you know still considered one of the quote unquote feminist movies to hit the Oscars but um but the but the controversy of that movie, you know, which appeared back then and still continues to this day is that a lot of people accuse it of being man hating because all the men are you know, many of the men, not all the men, there's several characters who are not dicks. 
but many of them are portrayed as dicks, and then the women um, commit all these crimes, and then they become martyrs, and then they drive their Cadillac off the cliff of Thunder, the Grand Canyon. Thunderbird. Campus. It's a Thunderbird. Thunderbird. Beautiful mm-hmm. Thunderbird. Mm-hmm. Off the cliff of the Grand Canyon and kill themselves. And um, directed by Ridley Scott, you know, incredible performances by... Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, some of, two of the best performances you'll ever see by actresses. They're so great in it. Boys, I'm getting mad. Okay, but where are we going? Oklahoma City. Jimmy's gonna wire me some money, and then we're gonna. Jimmy, see going. you talk to him. Did you tell him? What'd he say? Is he mad? No, I didn't tell him, and that's what we gotta get straight now. Daryl's been calling mad as a horn and making all kinds of noise, and when you call him, you gotta not tell him anything about this. You gotta just make sure everything sounds real normal. No, I called the asshole at 4 o'clock in the morning. He wasn't even home. I don't know what he's got to be mad about. I'm the one who should be mad. Thelma. I'm going to Mexico. Now, I figure I can make it in two and a half days, but I'm going to have to haul ass. Are you up to this? I mean, I got to know. This isn't a game. I'm in deep shit, and I got to know what you're going to do. I don't know. I don't know, Louise. I mean, I don't know what you're asking. Now, don't you, don't you start flaking out. I mean, God damn it, Thelma. Every time we get in trouble, you just get blank or... Or, or pleading sanity or some such shit. Not this time. I mean, this time, things have changed. Everything's changed. But I'm going to Mexico. I'm going. And this was the year that um, people thought Susan Sarandon was going to win because she was so overdue by then. Mm-hmm. And we were coming on to the Susan Sarandon Oscar story where, you know, she'll eventually win for Dead Man Walking. But this was the year everybody thought she was going to win. But, of course, Gina Davis was so great. And she, you know, they split the vote. Nobody was going to beat Jodie Foster. And, um, you know, so what do you guys think about the ending of Selma and Louise? I like it better than I used to. I used to sort of dismiss the movie as being sort of phony feminism. It seemed like it was feminism by having women act like men, by running around shooting people and robbing people. That that somehow was a feminist statement. But it's I, I've, I've underestimated it all these years. The ending is still troubling, um, and I still have a real problem with the villain characters because they're all cartoons. I think it would have been a stronger movie if the villains had been less obviously horrible. Um, mm-hmm. and, I think... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ryan. I think what they do with the with the male characters in Thelma and Louise is they they every man has like seven or eight different aspects of himself that are that are that are sort of uh, aggravating and irritating. And the the male characters in Thelma and Louise, each of them personify one of those facets of the male personality that's aggravating. And and when you when you diagram it out like that, it becomes almost a little bit too simplistic. Right. 
But it's it fair to say that Harvey Keitel and Michael Madsen characters are all actually solid, but they're they're mm-hmm. not the bad guys. It's the it's the horrible trucker near the end whose truck they blow up. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, Daryl, the the shitty husband, <laughs> and uh, and uh, the rapist Har- Harlan, the rapist. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and like, then Brad Pitt, the thief who has sex with her. That and 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 then he steals all their money and runs off with their money. But see, he's the most he's the best of the villain characters oh, because yeah. he's at least ambiguous. Right, he seems extremely likable and charming and then he turns out to be a fink mm-hmm. um so he's he's way more interesting than the other ones but yeah, yeah. you're right I kind of well, what were you gonna say yeah. Go ahead. i was kind of saying about, about the ending it's interesting because the women do something that women normally don't do in film men remember in bush cassie and the sundance kids at the end of the film they kind of go out in a blaze of glory they go out shooting you know mm-hmm. no matter what happens to them and this movie is like a man's take on it where they're going out in a in a blaze of glory no matter what and they go over the cliff and it's it's unusual for a woman's picture for women to do that so i think that's why it's so interesting that they would do that cuz mm-hmm. normally a woman wouldn't women don't go out and do things like that you you expect a woman to give to to give up and 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 take their lumps and, and go, but but I, that's a great comparison with Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Butch and Sundance knew that they were sunk. They knew that there was no hope. They put on a brave face and they are optimistic and they're joking right up to the last minute. But they knew as soon as they step out from out behind the the columns, they're going to be shot up. And they know right. that it's the end. And it's it, I, I I can accept the ending, not only because it seems like it 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 works in the fact that that Thelma and Louise knew they were back into a corner and they're only way out was was going to be prison but also when i try to think of what what how else i would have ended it what other alternate ending i might have i might try to dream up and i can't think of one and i believe that ridley scott asked people he was he was a little bit ambiguous about the ending too and he right up and through filming he asked people can you think of any other way we can end this and nobody came up with a better idea they filmed an alternate ending where harvey Keitel goes to the edge of the canyon and looks down Sad, with the sad look on his face, looks down at the wreckage of the car, and then the last shot of the movie, they show the car driving off into the sunset. Oh, that would have been in a cloud of be... dust. That would have been horrible, right? Right. No, yeah. the whole point of them dying, I think, was like it was symbolism for you know. Or I, I didn't know that they had argued about the ending. If I had known that, then it would. Then now it seems to now it seems arbitrary, and whereas before it seemed very deliberate to say that they were you know martyrs for the feminist cause because they they knew that no matter what they did, their rape excuse wasn't going to be um, you know. Because Louise had been screwed over, she had gone, she had claimed rape, and she went to jail, and she wasn't going to go back to jail. And Thelma went along with her because Thelma's not the brightest bulb. But to me, that movie it was insulting and frustrating because women are, you know, are a lot more resourceful than that, and and more trusting. And in no way would you go and assume that, you know, you couldn't get a good lawyer and get yourself out of that situation by explaining what happened. You know? Oh, I think you could. I believe you could. But and then, also, but she then, did but, murder but, a guy. But, but if you, you, know, but if she, you end the movie like that, she took then a you gun don't... and she killed a guy. You know, so she committed murder. So she mm-hmm. does deserve whether or not they were going to. I mean, is it so bad a world for a woman? That if you commit murder and they arrest you, you can't say this is what happened. It was self, def- you know, that I was defending my friend who was getting raped on this car, you know. And yes, maybe she's going to go back to jail, but she at least could plead her defense. She did commit a crime. 
I see the point, but at the same time, if you're gonna if you're gonna have that be the ending, which I think would have worked as an ending, don't you have to show them getting handcuffed? Don't you have to show them getting no, a lawyer? I don't don't I, you have I'm to show sorry. them going to I'm, trial I'm, in I'm order mistaking. to have that in I'm, order I'm, to have I'm that closure? Speak, no, I'm not saying that's how the movie should end. I would never say that. That would be like the stupid person's version of the movie. <laughs> I would never say that. The Thelma and Louise it had to end that way. It's a cinematic ending, and I get that. I'm just saying my problem with it is this. This right. is my problem with it. You know, I feel like these women never any of them kind of took responsibility for their life choices that they made you know up to and including um you know like Selma living with that hideous guy you know being married to him i'm not saying that i have the best choice in men as you guys know i don't but i know how people can get caught in traps and really that's what Thelma and louise is about it's about escaping traps but is really the best message for that you escape the trap by killing yourself by taking yourself mm-hmm. out of the whole system because you can't fight the system to me it's it's sort of like a, a snake eating its own tail like it just perpetuates the victimization rather than leads to empowerment by women i i absolutely see your point and i don't i do think i don't think that it shows anything about empowerment i do think what it does show is that no matter what guy they ran up against he was going to screw them over and they they were experienced throughout their entire life every guy that they had any kind of relationship with he he ended up screwing them over so why would they not expect that that would continue to be the case and in a way the way the movie ends it turns this turns the story into just uh, a, a chase a cross-country chase it turns it instantly into a parable it turns it into a sort of a moral fable in a way that this is this is the only way out for for a lot of women in society that no matter where they turn they're going to run up against some asshole but i don't agree with that i mean you know me yeah, I'm see, a that's rabid too fatalistic feminist. i'm a rabid feminist and i believe in women you know and i know women are victim victimized i just i don't think that everybody in the movie every guy they come up with like for instance harvey keitel is a good guy um, you know, a lot of men come through for them and help them and save them. I mean, by giving men power over their fate and their destiny, they are, you know, they are affirming this notion that that the, their power and fate is, is in the hands of men. And it isn't necessarily, you know. Um, I think there are, I mean, I'm just saying, let's, let's say, I agree with you. Parable, absolutely. Cinematic, totally. Interesting to have an ending people can talk about. All of that. But I'm just saying, me personally, I disagree with that action taken as a way mm-hmm. out because to me, that's a last resort. Right. I think, I'm, yeah. I'm uncomfortable with the way they try to make it seem like a positive ending because they have the uplifting music and it kind of fades to white and everybody's, you know, it, it's, it, should, it should end tragically, but they try to make it. They try, I don't know. Well, they, 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 I'm glad that Michael brought up um, Butch and Sundance because I thought of the exact same thing. But the key difference is, is that Butch and Sundance went out fighting back, whereas Thelma and Louise go out seemingly just sort of giving up. And I, I think that's a terrible message. Would it have been a bad ending if they had gotten caught, like stopped at the edge of the cliff and got arrested? I mean, would that have been a bad ending? Like, a, yes. It wouldn't have been as popular of an ending, but For it would me, have been I... more realistic. And I think if they get caught and they go through the system and maybe they still get screwed, but they become cult heroes and they become inspirations to other people to stand up for themselves, then maybe you've got something. Yeah. But did it, did, but did it seem like... Because I remember the movie... Um, and don't you feel that it kind of doesn't make sense that they took that took that action just go straight ahead and commit suicide like they could have had an alternative to me there could have been something else you can say that but but then how do you explain all the suicides that really happen in real life 
because that's, sometimes people do feel like that's their only way out. There, there are thousands of suicides committed around the world every day because people think they don't have any, any other option. So it really does happen. No, we don't it need does. Them to it tell us that does, life is hopeless and that there's a no, no choice but suicide. <laughs> I think we do. I, I don't. Yeah, and I makes me sad. <laughs> I mean, when you see that, you want to you want to save people from that. You don't want them to think that. And that's the problem I have with Thelma and Louise, as Craig's saying, is that they, they we're supposed to think of them as heroes, and yet my reaction to someone like that, this poor girl who just killed herself recently because of cyberbullying, mm. is to want to get in there and protect her and want to, you know, and I guess. If that's what the Thelma and Louise message is, that we need to protect women, especially men need to protect women, well, that's archaic, you know? Women are powerful and and smart, and especially Louise. I mean, how could they take a character who was so efficient and so smart? Yes, she's a waitress. You know, she, she has a criminal past or whatever, and she makes a mistake. But everything she does from that point on is stupid, and Thelma, too. They're like two dumb women who keep making mistakes. They're not smart enough to get themselves out of the situation. They keep making it worse. You know, so they're their own worst enemies, not the people, not the men that they're involved with. They're the ones. Thelma's the one who leaves the money in the hotel room with um, Brad Pitt. She's the one who drops the 20 out of the thing and goes. Louise is the one who doesn't call the cops right away after they shoot. Louise is the one who pulls the gun out of her bag and kills the guy when he's raping. Thelma's the one who gets totally fucking drunk with that guy and dances with him and flirts with him. I'm not saying, no, believe me, I'm not getting into the she deserves to be raped because we know that's not the case. But I'm just saying their actions led to their fate in this movie. All I agree. I, I see what you. But that's what makes mean. it entertaining, Sasha, in a sense. You know, yeah, it does. But I'm just saying, they're right? Not but heroes. that's what keeps it from being great. It's mm-hmm. entertaining, but it's not. I mean, it's if not they had used common sense, it would have been a boring movie. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? and I, I agree with that. I, I sort of wish in the right. Oops. Can you hear me? Uh-huh. Yeah, you kind of wish... dropped out a little bit there, but yeah. I can still hear you. I sort of wish in the writing that there was a little more. Um, there was a little more. Um, you know. Uh, uh, more on the line for Louise. Like, we just hear that she had this horrible time. I don't want to go through Texas and all that. But I sort of wish that, you know, there was something really that she really couldn't turn back from. And to have killed a man would have really led to either, you know, capital. I, I always assumed that she was raped in Texas. Yeah, she was. She was raped in Texas and she went to jail or or she escaped jail and she couldn't go back or something like that, right? Yeah. Or not even that she couldn't go back, but just didn't want to. She just hated that state so much because of the way they treated her there. It's just someplace she never wanted to go again is the impression I got. Or it could be that she jumped bail and she's mm-hmm. living but on that the That could land. be too, yeah. You know, but they never talk about that because he just says, Louise, I know what happened to you in Texas. But um, but this is only like analysis of it. I it's actually a good you know a pretty you know it's, for me it's an enjoyable film to watch because the actresses are so funny and so and, good. You know, exactly. And you know, we should say, in spite of the tragic ending, it's a pretty strange ending to have for a comedy. Uh, above all, what the movie is more than anything else, it's funny as hell. It's really funny. You know, as 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 tragic as it is, as you just wish that you could, so they had someone to help sort of give them better advice because they do keep making mistakes. I don't, I don't blame them for stumbling into these things and trusting guys. It, that, that's the biggest mistake is that they trusted the wrong guys. I guess it's interesting so. that, you know, it's interesting that this film got like all these major Oscar nods, but it, it bypassed Best Picture. Yeah, right. That, that, that's kind of interesting. The movie was, was was a hit, and it had this very powerful feminist statement in it. And with women in Hollywood who vote 
in Hollywood. I'm surprised it did not get a Best Picture nod. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a big deal at the you time know. that it didn't, especially since Beauty and the Beast did, you know? And Ridley really, yeah. Scott was nominated for Best Director. Best Director. got It got actress, director, mm-hmm. screenplay, and I think film editing or something like that. Yeah. It didn't get like Best Picture. That's really odd. And, and then the flip side of that is The, the Prince of Tides, which is probably not really my favorite movies at all, but it was nominated for Best Picture. And once again, the director, who's Barbara Streisand, who's a woman, is overlooked because... And there was a big, probably a big scandal and a big, a lot of noise about that at the time that the director of the, one of the best picture movies is a woman and she doesn't get nominated for best yeah. director. And especially, at, and especially at the Oscars itself, so many friends of Robert Streisand who went out to who give out the awards would mention it constantly of how mm. her not getting nominated. It was no. the biggest snub. I remember of all. reading about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Okay. But at least it won Best Screenplay. At least Thelma and Louise won Best Screenplay. And we can also at least try to try to think that it was written by a woman. And so it is not as if this is some male fantasy that he was trying to make these women appear to be like these, these, these uh, fuck-ups, you know. It was written by a woman, and you want to, want to think that she's, that she's going, to, going to represent uh, women well in her, in her own screenplay. Right, right. And I, you know, I'm willing to totally keep an open mind when it comes to Thelma and Louise. I like talking about it, but, mm-hmm. but I do see, I do see, um, the problems, you know, I don't, yeah. but now let's move on to the greatest film ever made, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> They're one of the greatest best picture winners ever, that's for sure. How very thoughtful. Or did Jack Crawford send you for one last wheedle before you're both booted off the case? No, I came because I wanted to. People will say we're in love. Anthrax Island. That was an especially nice touch, Clarice. Yours? Yes. Yeah. That was good. Pity about poor Catherine, though. Tick-tock. Your anagrams are showing, Doctor. Louis' friend. Iron sulfide, also known as, as fool's gold. Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You were telling me the truth back in Baltimore, sir. Please continue now. Well, I've read the case files, have you? Everything you need to find him is right there in those pages. And tell me how. First principles, Clarice. Simplicity. Read Marcus Aurelius of each particular thing. Ask, what is it in itself? What is its nature? What does he do, this man you seek? He kills women. No, that is incidental. What is the first and principal thing he does? What needs does he serve by killing? Anger. Um, social acceptance and, um... Sexual frustrations. No, he covets. That is his nature. And how do we begin to covet, Clarice? Do we seek out things to covet? Make an effort to answer now. No, we just... Now, we begin by coveting what we see every day. Don't you feel eyes moving over your body, Clarice? And don't your eyes seek out the things you want? So, Silence of the Lambs is a uh, was was originally going to start um, um, 
Michelle Pfeiffer, who turned it down because she thought it was too dark. And then who was the one hired, Michael, do you know, for Sons of the Lambs? Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman was going to be... Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman was going to be um, Hannibal Lecter, and he also turned it down for the similar reasons. He thought it was too graphic. And the guy of the French Connection thought it was too graphic. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then um, Anthony Hopkins and the rest is film history. Um, the Sons of the Lambs is one of the few movies in Oscar history that actually has a female in the lead that you know doesn't have a love story attached to it. And in fact, she's really opposed to that. I think in the book she has an affair with the FBI guy. But in the movie, they keep it very, you know, her, they keep her as just professional. She's on the job, mm-hmm. you know. Um, a graduated UVA doctor. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not a charm school. But um, the the uh, the best thing about Silence of the Lambs is the relationship between, I think, between Clarice and Hannibal. And I really believe, and I've always believed, that the reason it won the Oscar was because of, for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Actor, Best Screenplay, and Best Director – which only a few films in Oscar history have done that, is for that one scene between the two of them where he's in the jail cell and she's telling him her story of the the lambs, the spring slaughtering of the spring lambs. And that scene is so intense and so emotional that even though it's a genre movie, that elevated it to something higher. And I think that's eventually what made it win. What did you do? I went downstairs outside. I crept up into the barn. I was, I was so scared to look inside, but I had to. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Lambs. They were screaming. They were slaughtering the spring lambs? And they were screaming. And you ran away? No. First I tried to free them. I... I opened the gate to their pen, but they wouldn't run. They just stood there, confused. They wouldn't run. But you could, and you did, didn't you? Yes. I took one lamb, and I ran away as fast as I could. Where were you going, Clarice? I don't know. I didn't have any food, any water, and it was very cold. Very cold. I thought... I thought if I could save just one, but... It was so heavy. It was so heavy. I didn't get more than a few miles when the sheriff's car picked me up. Rancher was so angry, he sent me to live at the Lutheran Orphanage in Postman. I never saw the ranch again. What became of your lamb, Clarice? You still wake up sometimes, don't you? You wake up in the dark and hear the screaming of the lambs. Yes. And you think if you save poor Catherine, you could make them stop, don't you? You think if Catherine lives, you won't wake up in the dark ever again to that awful screaming of the lambs. I don't know. When Sansa Lambs first came out in February, I saw that movie three times in one day. For every viewing, I would take, I would ask other friends to come with me to see it. That's how much I loved it. That's how good I thought it was. It was the only movie I think I've seen 
um, maybe one or two or three that I've seen get a standing ovation in a theater um, afterwards without it being a screening or something like that. Like just a random standing ovation of of applause, which I've never really seen since, that kind of excitement in the movie. I didn't think it was going to, at the time, I didn't know anything about the Oscars. I didn't think, I thought Bugsy was going to win. And when Silence of the Lambs won, it made me totally pay attention to the Oscars and start thinking, wow, they, maybe they do really reward the best film of the year. Well, I, you know, the thing is that it came out so early in the year that nobody would have thought that a film that came out in February would still be in any, anyone's, their consciousness by the time the Oscars that came around. And I think it came, I think it's the first film to win Best Picture that was on video. Because it mm-hmm. came out on VHS. It was the first one. Not only, not only on video, but it had sold the cable, too. So it was on it was on videotape, VHS tape, and it had already shown on television. It's the only, it was the, you're right, it was the first movie, first best, best Picture winner that ever had that happen. Right. And the only other times this ever happened was it happened one night, all five, and um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. One flew over, one, yeah. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's the only time that it ever happened. And interesting enough, um, Anthony Hopkins had the shortest um, screen time for a Best Actor win. I think it was like 16 minutes. It's the shortest ever. Mm-hmm. But they had to reward and, him because he became a cultural phenomenon. You know, after that movie, they, they he's still a cultural. We've got Hannibal. We've got the sequels to Silence of the Lambs. People still say, you know, lines from from Hannibal Lecter. I mean, he was that was it. The, he was the movie. That accent, that accent that he had and the lines that he said became catchphrases all year long. I think didn't they throughout mm-hmm. the ni- throughout 1991? People were repeating, quoting that movie. And 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 when Billy Crystal came out on stage of the Oscars that year, he came out rolled out on a on a on a dolly as Hannibal Lecter with the mask on and everything. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know, I kind of feel sorry for the first actor who played him in the movie Manhunter, the very first actor who played him, William Peterson. Just think if he had gotten that role, you know. Nah. No, he couldn't have. He couldn't have equaled. But um, he couldn't have paid it off. I, I'm know. still trying to picture Gene Hackman as Hannibal Lecter. Do you pick your Stephen <laughs> Poughkeepsie Clarice? <laughs> <laughs> well, Michelle, it, it, it doesn't work. No, it, it's like it's like um, it reminds me of Casablanca. You hear about all these other people who were chosen before the original people, but now you watch the movie and you can't possibly imagine anybody but the people who they chose. And it was one of those confluences of, of luck and timing and just things just fell into the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And, and the relationship between Hannibal and Clarice is so exceptional, you know, that, that it becomes, you know, she, she walks in as a rookie FBI agent and he sees through her immediately and, and yet he, he almost trusts her because she's so genuine and because they've fooled her, she doesn't really know she's putting one over on him. And they do a, a quid pro quo. He tells her things. She tells him things. Um, I have to also say, I know I say this all the time, but I actually literally know every line of this movie. Don't I, Michael? <laughs> you watched it with me. Don't I know every line of this movie? I could say it. That's with Carrie. <laughs> that ain't Carrie. You know Carrie, and I know Silence of the Lambs. But, but I have um, to say, it's, um, it's one of the few films where, remember towards the end, when um, at at the graduation party, it's the only time in the film where a, where a woman offers her hand to a man for a handshake. It, it really shows that they were equal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Women don't do that. It's always the men who offer the handshake. But she raises her hand, and he takes her hand and shakes it. That shows that they were equals. And I, I think that's, that was a very powerful scene 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jodie Foster, I think, said that year. She, she, she's quoted some places saying that she felt like that um, um, Clarice was the very first uh, female hero in movie history. I really can't think of, of, of many exceptions that, that would prove that wrong. I mean, there were a lot of lead characters, a lot of lead, lead female characters who were tragic people in different movies throughout, throughout movie history, but none that were, that were ever the hero. That's it's a way stronger feminist statement than anything in Thelma and Louise, I think. Mm. And that's, that's the thing that I love about it, is that it's all about, as, as memorable as Anthony Hopkins is, and as, as important as he is to the, to the film, it, to me it's all about her journey from the way she starts, and she's kind of meek and sort of put upon by all these men and, and sort of shut out of the room in terms of this investigation. Um, and as it goes along, she takes more and more charge of the thing and uh, ends up being the hero of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, the also, okay. no, go ahead. No, also, I, and I mentioned this to Sasha. I always felt that Ted Levine, who played um, Buffalo Bill, mm-hmm. should have got nominated. I think this was an Oscar nominated performance. Oh wait, was she a great big fat person? <laughs> it bothers my mind that it didn't it, it didn't extend to the supporting characters because he obviously deserves a. He's become like a weird internet cult hero. Like there's that whole song um, that someone did on YouTube about Silence of the Lambs where it's just all about him, you know. Um, And then I'll go out walking with my little dog and then I'll bury her underneath (laughs) a log. (laughs) That whole thing with Ted Levine and that because all the things about Silence of the Lambs are so dead serious. But then here's this weird character and he actually... The the film's only controversy was around Ted Levine's character because the the gay community was very sort of insulted and upset because they thought that it was using every cliche in the book and that he was being portrayed as a um, kind of a campy queen and that they were saying that that you know gay men were murderers. But the truth is is that they were very specific about who what Buffalo Bill was and what he mm-hmm. was was a guy. Mm-hmm pretending to be a transvestite he wasn't really even gay he was right. a fledgling he didn't know killer. what he was mm-hmm. yeah, we had this conversation before a couple of years ago i think in another podcast where you guys sent me straight i always had the impression too that i i had i guess i bought into the to the to the uh, queer nation argument that that it was that it was insulting to gay people but you two convinced me that he's that he wasn't gay that he was he was a cross dresser who just happened to like to dress up in other people's skin right Cross-dressers are mostly straight guys anyway, you know, except for drag queens. Uh, most guys who, who, who dress another and, and dress up and, and, and flounce around like a, like a woman, they're gay guys. I mean, they're straight guys, yeah. you know? And he, yeah, and I, I could understand where the criticism is coming from because, yes, he, mm-hmm. he puts on the lipstick and, you know, he, mm-hmm. he does the thing where he hides his dick or whatever and he looks like a woman. But... The fact is, is that he was based on Ed Gain, and Ed Gain was so weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ed Gain used to have he used to have body parts in his refrigerator and all like hidden all over his house. He had human skin that he used to wear. He was just more of a of a um, cannibal and a weird consumer of you know flesh and and human stuff and and less mm-hmm. and that's where his sexuality was it wasn't he wasn't gay and um the character ted levine in the film isn't isn't gay you know right. but but in hannibal will always say that throughout you know he's like well know. he can also kind of be based on jeffrey dahmer too because jeffrey dahmer was gay and he did like 
save people's hearts. Yeah, but like he that. wasn't based on Jeffrey Dahmer. Though. He wasn't based on Jeffrey Dahmer because Jeffrey Dahmer came afterwards, didn't he? As far as I can't remember exactly the time frame, but I didn't. Yeah. It was Jeffrey Dahmer? Couldn't have been based on Jeffrey Dahmer because Jeffrey Dahmer hadn't even been wasn't even a person yet. Right, Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, okay. then but I he, could be wrong then. They come from a whole different set of serial killers, you know. And, and when I first saw Sons of the Lamb, since I'm a bit of a serial killer aficionado, I thought that um, they got it wrong, you know, because he was too flamboyant it must be said for for your typical serial killer but the more i've watched the movie over and over again all of that kind of stuff fades away because the movie is just the movie it's like visiting old relatives the wonderful um you know art direction in 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 and buffalo bill's weird house not just the Mm -hmm. hole and all of that um Mm -hmm. but the kitchen and the bathroom with the rotting corpse and um all the dirty dishes and all the weird sewing stuff. I mean, that is, if you look back at that movie and you watch just how they set up that house, that is insane. Mm -hmm. You know, that, um, it also, um, Jonathan Demi kind of exhibited some virtuoso directing where he, you know, he did his usual trademark, which is having people talk right to the camera. Like they look at the camera when they speak. If you notice that they Mm -hmm. don't look around or, or to the left or to the right of the lens, they look right into the lens when they talk to you. And that's a Jonathan Demme thing. And then they also, he also does this wonderful thing at the end where the FBI guys are knocking on um, what they think is James Gum's house. And, and the audience thinks that, too. The audience thinks that, too. And at the same time, Jodie Foster's going to Ms. Littman's house, and she thinks that, you know, and, and nobody knows that she's about to confront the killer. And as soon as she stands there and she sees the butterfly or the moth land on the thread, it all comes together for her. And she's a rookie FBI agent. She grabs her gun and she does exactly what we see her doing in the very opening scene, which she fails at. And this time she succeeds. It's, it's great. It's just a great it movie. It is. It's fantastic. That whole scene with the, um, with the night vision goggles and everything is just incredible filmmaking. I want to correct myself, Michael. You're right about Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer, in fact, was was killed in prison in 1991. So he had been arrested two or three years before that. So you're right. Jeffrey Dahmer did exist before Silence of the Lambs. So it could have been kind of based on it. It may 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 have been associated in people's minds. And that's probably what what the um, gay people were protesting about before the Oscars. They probably made the same misinterpretation that they were afraid that a lot of straight people were going to make. Right. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been the first movie to come along that associates criminality with, with um, homosexuality. So it's not right. like it's a totally out of the blue accusation. But if you look closer mm-hmm. at what the film is really saying, and I think it even makes the point that I think Hannibal says at one point that he's not he's not gay. He, it's, mm-hmm. His sexual identity problem is part of a bigger identity problem. It's just a manifestation of it. Gay people, too, were upset. Basic Instinct was filming in San Francisco at the same time, around the same time as the Oscars, and that has a lesbian killer in it, right? And so they were already already mad. They were mad about that, and they were mad about everything. And it was interesting that the the Academy just totally... ignored all those protests and in fact it was probably pretty well known already that jodie foster was gay she was she was already yeah. there was a lot of already a lot of talk about that and they also ignored all that and decided to give her the best actress award right exactly you know, so and, it and, was- and i was going to say one more thing about beauty and the beast probably that played into a really sad really really sad tragic narrative too about beauty and the beast that alan minkin and howard ashman were the writers of the music and songs for that and 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 uh howard ashman died um before beauty and the beast um 
was a was was even seen he died of aids and so that was well known in hollywood and so that probably engendered a lot of sympathy for beauty and the beast Mm, mm, mm. just a shout out for dallas buyers club everybody see that movie it's just going to be one of the best movies of the year and i mean those characters still i i feel like they're like right around the corner i knew them so well and when you bring Mm. up aids it makes me think of that movie so just Mm. please go see it um, I don't know what else we can say about Silence of the Lambs, except that I remember when Jodie Foster won Best Actress. I didn't think she would win because she had just kind of won for The Accused. As much as I love her in Silence of the Lambs, as you well know, as much as I love the movie, I'm not so sure I would have given her Best Actress for that. I think I would have given it to Susan Sarandon for Thelma and Louise. Mm-hmm. Probably you're probably right in guessing that maybe Susan Sarandon was probably, as far as number of votes, she probably came in second. But it had to have hurt her vote tally that have Gina Davis nominated in the same category. I don't usually buy into the fact that, that, that there can be a vote split, but when two actresses are in the same movie and they're, they're, they're co-leads, there's no way to deny that they're, they're going to be people who are going to vote for one or the other. Right, right, exactly. And Gina Davis was so good. It would have been one thing if Gina Davis hadn't been as good as she was, but she's great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how do you choose between the two of them? But for me, at that time, when I, you know, when this, when, when the Oscars were happening, the narrative was Susan Sarandon has never won an Oscar and she's overdue. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people thought she was going to win. And I remember Jodie Foster was so funny when she won the Oscar. She's like strolled up on stage, really cool and confident. You know, she just looked so, she was so relaxed compared to when she had won for The Accused, you know. And I think she was really surprised. I don't think she thought she was going to win for that, Sounds of the Lambs. Another interesting thing about that night on Oscar night, uh, the night that she picked up her second Oscar, was the 11th anniversary of John Hinckley's assassination attempt on, on Ronald Reagan. To the day. I mean, to the absolute day, the 11th anniversary of that assassination attempt when John, John Hinckley was obsessed with Jodie Foster from Taxi Driver. So that's, what a, span, what a thing to have gone through the previous decade that year also Jodie Foster had directed that uh, Little Man Tate that movie Little Man Tate which was really uh, got a really good critical a lot of critical acclaim and so she was riding high right Mm. Sorry, I think, am I being really overbearing? To this, this <laughs> Not week? at all. It seems like, no. like taking over. I'm so sorry. Everybody just gets really quiet and no. waits for me to finish. <laughs> no, you always say a good thing to, to close out the no, podcast. And we're at five. And also, um, so when she did win, win the Oscar. <laughs> like backstage, they told everyone, let's not talk about um, Hinkley. Don't oh, talk about right? Him. Yeah. Because she, yeah, she's been hearing about it for to death. You know, every every time she's on on stage or something, back backstage, somebody always talks about John Hinckley with her, and right. she's getting she got tired of hearing it. So before she went backstage, they made an announcement: do not talk about John Hinckley. Wow, yeah. Talk about the Oscars. Talk about yeah. the Oscars. Also, her win—it's rare for an actress to win, skip two years, and win again. It, it, it only happened a few times. It, like in Oscar history, that that happens with actresses more so than actors because it goes all the way back. Where um, I think the last time that happened was Glenda Jackson, where she won, skipped two years, and won again. So I think maybe our eyes were on Susan Sarandon, but Jodie Foster pretty much dominated that film. Mm-hmm. You know, she she had to win. I mean, Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, they both were equal in the film so mm-hmm. it'd be difficult to separate one from the other they both gave great performances 
So I think they decided on Jodie Foster because she was the only female lead, female lead, and she carried that film throughout. She was the she carried that film. Yeah, okay. So they had to give it to her. Yeah, I, and I understand that. It took me a while to really get it because I thought that she kind of, I mean, as great as she is and as much as I love her character, I, I just, coming from her performance in The Accused, it seemed like it wasn't as strong. Sort of like um, Hillary Swank in Million Dollar Baby versus Hillary Swank in Boys Don't Cry, you know, the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Hillary Swank carried Million Dollar Baby, but I just felt like Boys Don't Cry was such a superior performance and, and her th- which Jodie Foster does in The Accused is like mind blowing, and her Clarice is it's mind blowing, but it's just not quite up to that level of mind blowingness, in my opinion. It's more subtle, Sasha. It's a more subtle. Yeah, and I love her character, and you know, I'm not saying anything bad about the movie. I'm just saying that if it were me, I, it would have been hard because of S- Susan Sarandon is just such a fabulous actress, you know, and she was so. Overdue. Oh, before before we go, I do have this one question about Silence of the Lambs. Do you guys consider this a horror film more so than like a like a thriller? I mean, they, can, they call it the first horror film to win a Best Picture Oscar, but I don't know if I see it as a horror film. I don't. I see it as more of a thriller. It, it has horror elements to it, but it doesn't. It's, it's bread and butter is not scaring you necessarily. There's too much more going on. But it is locked up, in, it, they, but they do put it in the horror category because every video store I went to, I went to, Silence of the Lamb is in the horror yeah, I think for it to be a really traditional, I, I consider it a horror movie only because I like to say that a horror movie won the Oscar. But mm-hmm. um, but I think for it to be a horror movie, it should have been they would have shown more grisly murders, maybe. You know, mm-hmm. a horror movie needs a monster, and Hannibal Lecter certainly is a monster. But he's a monster that can exist in real life. We know that for sure because we have seen those people who do exist in real life. So he's not a fictional monster in the sense that that we're so that we're used to thinking about in a horror film. Also, maybe just because it was it was very ghoulish. There's no doubt that it's ghastly and really ghoulish, and so that can that probably is one of the reasons that it wins its horror um, movie label. But but he's a re- he could he's a real Serial, serial killers like that do exist, and so that that I think takes it from the realm of horror into really, just really strange reality. You know, because when I saw the film, what freaked me out more about that film was the fact that there is a, there are places in the United States that have people like Hannibal Lecter sectioned off from even the population of the prison in behavioral type settings. I mean, mm-hmm. there are people that are that warped in the mind. Mm-hmm. That they that they exist like that. That somewhere there are places that people exist that are that sick in the head mm-hmm. that they keep locked up for the rest of their lives. That's just really frightening and scary to me. Yeah, you know. And there are people walking the streets right now. You never know who's who. You don't know that there are people that are even walking among us that could be like a Hannibal Lecter, and that's been proven. Jeffrey Dahmer, Gacy, mm-hmm. all the way back. It's just really frightening that it really opened up my eyes to the fact that how. Um, that there are these really sick people in the world. It's amazing that they could they could give the Oscar to a character like that because it happens so rarely. Usually, it's somebody. The Oscar goes to somebody that you can. It's really really rare. You have to have like an Idi Amin or Hannibal Lecter or even Vito Corleone was a lovable old murderer. You know, he was a lover, lovable old gangster. But it's really it's really rare to try to think of any other p- person in Oscar history who won Best Actor who was so evil. Well, Idi Amin was was a monster himself. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was wonderful, you guys. I think it was a really good Oscar podcast. What do you guys think? 
I've already I've already said too much. I can't say anything. Else. <laughs> I've already talked too much. <laughs> Never. If I say it was great, it'll be like I'm patting myself on the back. Oh no. Well, I, well, I, I learned so much from you guys. So um, that's why I keep my mouth shut most of the time. I just listen to what you guys say. You guys get more in depth to the film. I, so, but I have to. My my views on films are sometimes a little different, but I love the way you guys get real like in depth. I I, I do appreciate that. Oh, that's nice. I, to I really. I think we all come at it from a really different angle, and and I, I really appreciate your input too, Michael. You're... I love that hearing what you guys think because a lot of the stuff we talk about we've never talked about before. All three, all you know, four of us together um, to to you know, like I don't know what you guys think about. I mean, I kind of knew Craig had a man crush on Warren Beatty. <laughs> I didn't know to what extent, for instance. <laughs> no, I'm just because <laughs> he it likes has no bounds. <laughs> it's never ending. Um, but when did you learn, Craig, that you had a man crush on him? Was it when, when it's only been in the last couple of years. Couple of years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what was your and movie? I realized that... if, I, if I could have anybody else's life but my own, it would be his. Oh yeah, right. I, I... Just, it's. Uh, I just. I, I admire him because he's so talented creatively but he's also obnoxiously handsome and he's banged all the best broads he's pretty much done everything i would want to do you've been listening to episode 44 of oscar podcast with craig kennedy from livinginsinema.com ryan adams and sasha stone from awardsdaily.com with special guest michael gray and we'll be back next week with another episode you can follow us on twitter at oscar podcast and the bumper music was two songs from 1991 